All right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you will turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 is where we are. As you're turning there, I want to encourage you to remember that we are getting closer to the end of our study of Revelation. In fact, today I will turn the last page in my copy of God's Word um, uh, to the very last page uh, of God's Word as far as my copy is concerned. But while we remember that, I want to also remember that it's not quite time to start sprinting to the finish line just yet. There's plenty of work left for us to do before we wrap things up. In the next few weeks, we'll, fi- we'll finish this study. Like We will be able to look back and, and see the things that God has taught us. We'll be able to look back and reflect upon this journey that we've been on, and we're super thankful for that. Last week's text, in many ways, transitioned us out of uh, the apocalyptic style, the apocalyptic portion of Revelation into the more prophetic and epistolary form as John wraps up this book. We heard last week the angel affirm the veracity and the trustworthiness of these words. I tried to show you that that statement doesn't just apply to the immediate context. He's not just saying those last few words I shared with you, John, are trustworthy and true. He's not just saying that even the book of Revelation is trustworthy and true. He's saying that all of the Bible, we would apply that statement to all of the Bible as faithful and true. I told you last week that we can trust these words. And because we can trust these words, we should study them. We should know them. We should devote time and attention, sweat and labor to this. We should avoid distractions and time wasters. One of the things that we talked about on Sunday night when we got together was a text from 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says this, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Verse 7 he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We need to avoid distractions. We need to nourish ourselves on sound doctrine, on these words and sound doctrine, and avoid uh, worldly fables fit only for old women. One of the great joys that we have as a church, as a local church, is we get to study these words together in small groups. We get to seek nourishment and godliness together in small groups. And I encourage you to give yourself to that. Don't avoid that. Don't neglect that. Give yourself to the study of God's word in small groups. You will be better in a thousand ways for that time. But as much as we want to know and study the word of God, we don't just want to be students. We don't just want to be learners. We don't want to be intellectuals or scholars. Our goal at First Baptist Church is not to make nerds. We want to make disciples. We want to make followers of Jesus Christ. So we not only know the word, we heed the word, as the text said last week. We strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James says. We seek to be the kind of people that Jesus compares to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds came and the floods came and slammed against that house, it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. We seek to be those who hear the words of God and act on them. That's what Jesus was talking about when he told that story. And one of the clear commands, one of the best ways that we can heed the word of God, especially in our study of Revelation, is by worshiping God. It's one of the things we see over and over again in Revelation is the people of God stirred to worship him. Like John, this should be our gut reaction. This should be our immediate response to what we see of the Lord in his word. We should worship him. That's one way we can heed the word of God. 
And another way we can heed the word of God is to share it with other people. We want to hear and see and tell. We want to hear and see and tell. That same pattern that we see with John in Revelation, same pattern we see with John in his gospel, same pattern we see with John in his letters, same pattern we see throughout the Old, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We want to see and hear and tell. That's one way we can heed the word of God. Well, this week we're going to continue to see a sense of urgency as the book comes to a close. There's a clear call in the text today for the faithful, the followers of Jesus, to continue living by faith, to continue in obedience, in proclamation, in holiness. And there is also in the text today a clear call for those who are on the outside to come inside. Remember, one of the purposes of warnings in Scripture is to bring people to repentance and faith for salvation. And you're going to hear kind of a harsh tone of warning in the text today. And let's remember the purpose of it is to invite the outsiders in. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 10 through 15 today. This is what God's word says. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to live with a sense of urgency, knowing that the time is near, knowing that the Lord Jesus is coming quickly. And let us live with a sense of responsibility, knowing that when he comes, he will render to every man according to what he has done. Help us as your people to live with the obedience of faith. Teach us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Find us with robes washed white on that day. And Father, we pray for the dogs, for so we once were, but you changed us. And we pray for the outsiders, for so we once were, but you brought us in. We pray for the filthy, for so we once were, but you washed us. Father, would you do for them today what you did for us? Teach them about your holiness. Teach them about their sinfulness. Teach them about Christ's sacrificial death for them, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Oh, Father, give them faith to trust in Christ. Give them repentance to turn from sin and save them for their good eternally, for your glory forever and ever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, look at verse 10. We're going to be able to just work through verse by verse today. No, no need to split things up. Um, verse by verse works just fine today. It says, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. I've told you in our study of Revelation from the beginning that it is dripping with Old Testament connections. There are references and allusions and even some direct quotations. And here we see one of those connections. And what, the way it's connected to the Old Testament is in contrast with some things God says in Daniel. In fact, look at Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 in verse 26, it says, The vision of the evenings and mornings 
which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So God has revealed some things to Daniel in the book of Daniel, and he says, listen, these things are true, but seal them up, hide them, keep them secret, because they're about many days to come. He says a very similar thing later in chapter 12 of Daniel in verse 4, when he says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So there in verse 4, he says, seal it up because it's about the end of time. In chapter 12, verse 9, he says essentially the same thing. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Now, there are some other interesting connections between what we're looking at today in, in Revelation chapter 22 and Daniel chapter 12. I would encourage you to chase those down on your own time. But here... What I want you to see is the connection of the contrast between those words, those words that were given to Daniel that were to be sealed up because they pertain to many days in the future, they belong to the end of time. These words, these words in Revelation chapter 22, God says specifically, must not be sealed up. Why? Because the end has come. Because the time is near. We saw early on in the book, the seals are broken, the book is opened. And so there are two things I want us to take away from this first verse. One is there is a real sense of urgency. I want us to pick up from verse 10. There is a real sense of urgency, and we need to live like the time is near. We have always needed to live like that as believers. For generations, we have needed to live like that. I am not saying we need to live with a sense of urgency because of COVID. I'm not saying we need to live with a sense of urgency because of hurricanes and wars and rumors of wars or signs of the time. I'm not, I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying we need to live with a sense of urgency because the word of God calls us and has always called us to live with a sense of urgency. This is about trusting God's word and living with a sense of urgency and expectation. It's the first thing I want us to take away from verse 10, a sense of urgency. The second thing is a desire to proclaim. I want us to take away from this a desire to proclaim. These, these are not words that are meant to be sealed up. These are not words that are meant to be hidden away. In fact, this book, Revelation, is called the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing. And we are doing just that by our study. And by our conversations with neighbors and friends as we discuss the things we've been learning. This is about opening the book. Not closing it up. Not hiding it away in secret. God says, don't hide this. Don't seal it up. Because the end is near. So we want to have a sense of urgency and a desire to proclaim. And Danny Aiken sums this up well when he says, Christ could return at any moment. Eternity is drawing closer. For all of us, it is only a heartbeat away. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. We're not just talking about eternity drawing closer in the sense that Christ could descend from heaven with a shout at any moment. We're talking about eternity is ever drawing closer, even in your own life as an individual, it is only a heartbeat away. So he says, we dare not silence the word of God by disobedience, indifference, laziness, or neglect. We must preach it and teach it continually and faithfully. A time is coming when the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the word of God will be no more. Time is coming when the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the word of God will be no more. True. And so we live with a sense of urgency and with a strong desire to proclaim the word of God. Look at verse 11. It says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. 
The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, like many, most even verses in Revelation, there's debate about this verse. But I think that last bit of the quote from Danny Akin gets the gist of it when he says, a time is coming when the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the word of God will be no more. When we talked through this text on Tuesday, Pastor Dylan used a phrase that I think captures the tone of verse 11. He called it loving harshness. Loving harshness is a concept that we are not very familiar with. We know about harshness. We don't know often about loving harshness. And there is a loving harshness to this. Throughout Revelation, there has been a consistent invitation for the rebellious, the unbelieving, the lost to come to faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. This has been a consistent thing. We've seen it in the letters. We've seen it in the repeated warnings of Revelation. We will see it next week explicitly when there is this invitation to come. Come drink the water that is offered freely. And in this invitation for unbelievers, for the rebellious, for the lost to come to faith in Jesus, there have been a variety of tones employed in this invitation. Some of the tone is gentle. Some of it is wooing and kind. But at other times, the tone is shocking. It is strong. It is harsh even. And here in verse 11, the harshness is a bit shocking. We have seen over and over in Revelation that the wicked will be judged and that the righteous will be rewarded. There's no arguing that at this point in Revelation. And it seems to me that the message at the first of verse 11 is if you want to go on being wicked, if you want to go on being wicked, knowing what happens to the wicked, knowing that the time is near, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep, keep, keep going down the road you're going. If that's what you want, go ahead. If you are wicked, be wicked. If you are unrighteous, be unrighteous. I think it is that kind of tone that is intended to stir people up to repentance. I read one preacher that was talking about it would be like a tour guide at the Grand Canyon saying, you want to be an idiot and jump off? Go ahead. His point would not be that he desires you to jump off. His point would be don't do that. It's actually a call to repentance. It seems like this passage, like many others, especially at the end of chapter 22 of Revelation, is bringing us all to a point of decision. This stunning statement is bringing people to a point of decision. I think there's a parallel with Joshua in chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 24, just after rehearsing all the history of God's goodness and grace to the people of Israel, Joshua says this. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In verse 15 he says, If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? That last part is gold, right? But none of us understand the part just before that. Like, you want to go back to the Amorites? Go ahead. You want to go back to the gods on the other side of the river? Go ahead. Nobody is thinking that's what he really desires. Everybody understands that the tone of that is only a crazy person would do that. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to serve the Lord. It's a call to faithfulness. And I think the tone is very similar in verse 11. It's a call for people to serve God, to not go on being wicked and suffer the punishment of the wicked but to turn. So once again, once again, 
This is an invitation for people to repent and believe in Jesus. I think in verse 11, we need to see the command for the outsiders to come in. It's an appeal to the outsiders to come in. Kevin DeYoung said on Twitter this week, I totally disconnected from our study of this text. He said, implicit in the announcement of judgment from Nineveh to Abimelech to today is always the opportunity to repent, to turn, and to be forgiven. So this statement about let the unrighteous be unrighteous, let the wicked be, uh, be wicked, let the filthy go on being filthy, all of that is a warning of judgment that is an opportunity to repent. And so the message is to the outsiders, come in. And the other message in verse 11 is to the insiders to stay in. Outsiders come in. Insiders stay in. Don't overlook that part at the end of the verse. We've talked mostly about let the one who does wrong or the wrongdoer still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. But he also says let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. But don't overlook this part. In light of the nearness of Christ's return, the people of God, we who are the people of God, are to walk uprightly in obedience and faith. There's a really interesting thing going on here between the is and the does. The one who is, does. In other words, what you do is a reflection of who you are. Let the one who is righteous practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy be holy. How do we become righteous? By the imputation of Christ's righteousness, by grace through faith in him. And we execute that righteousness in our lives. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. But for now, verse 11, here's the takeaway. To the outsiders, a stunning kind of harsh invitation to come in. Don't, don't jump off the cliff. Come in to the city. And to the insiders, stay in. Go on in your righteousness. Go on in your holiness. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. This is the second time in two weeks we have heard Jesus say that he is coming quickly. And again, the urgency of this whole section cannot be overlooked. Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. My question is, are you ready for that? In fact, maybe that's the only thing you're going to hear today. Maybe that's the only thing you need to hear today. Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? I'm a little disappointed, honestly, in verse 12 with the New American Standard translation of the word reward here. Mostly because as we use the word reward today, it's almost exclusively a good thing. Like when I say, oh, you're going to get a reward, you think, ah, oh, some good thing is going to be given to me. But the Greek word here actually covers both good and bad. It covers both positive and negative. It expresses, the word that's here expresses a proper and just payment, whether that payment is good or bad. The translation, some of you have one in your lap that uses the word recompense. That's a better word. It's not a word we use very often, but I think it's a more accurate reflection of the word that is here. And the second part of the verse clarifies what he means. When he says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward or my recompense is with me, what he means is that he will render to every man according to what he has done. John MacArthur says, the knowledge that Jesus could return at any moment should not lead Christians to a life of idle waiting for his coming. 
Rather, it should produce diligent, obedient, worshipful service to God and urgent proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers. So when we read, I am coming quickly, we should respond with a certain lifestyle, a certain lifestyle knowing that he will render unto every man according to what he has done. In other words, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming with the Lord Jesus, and that judgment will be just. And this text once again teaches us that your deeds matter. Your, what you have done matters. What you do matters because what you do is evidence of who you are. There is this consistent connection in the text today between who you are and what you do. You see it in verse 11. You see it in verses 14 and 15. You even see it in the connection between 12 and 13 with the person of Jesus Christ. Chase that on your own if you want to. Judgment is coming, though. And that judgment will be just. Your deeds in this life matter because your deeds reveal who you really are. Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready for that? Look at verse 13. Jesus goes on and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There are a few things going on here. The first thing is this is high Christology. This is like a high view of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Some people want to spend a great deal of time trying to distinguish between these pairs, saying that each of these communicates something different, that Jesus is saying one thing when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He's saying another thing when he says, I'm the first and the last. He's saying a third and different thing by saying, I'm the beginning and the end. I don't think that's the case. I think he is communicating the same thing over and over for the sake of repetition and emphasis, saying that he is all and he is over all. I think Grant Osborne hits the nail on the head when he says, all three of these titles stress the sovereignty of God and Christ over history. They began human history in Genesis. They end it here. And this proves that they have been in control of every moment in between, guiding human history to its God-intended denouement at the eschaton. God is in charge. Jesus is in charge from the first to the last, the beginning and the end. He's in charge of it all. Jesus is God. One of the things we learn from these statements, he is God. And we should worship him as God. And the second thing we learn from these titles is that this is the basis of the judgment that he mentions in verse 12. The judgment, the just rendering to each man according to what he has done is going to be absolutely just because of who he is. Here's another connection. He is going to do what he does because he is who he is. It's the same principle that we see with us. With him, he is going to do what he does because he is who he is, and his judgment will be absolutely just and perfect. Look at verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. This is beautiful. There's a blessing and promises for those who wash their robes. It says they are blessed. This is the sixth or seventh time we've seen that language. They are blessed. They have the right to the tree of life, which is smack in the middle of the eternal temple garden city. We looked at that a few weeks ago. They are blessed because they get to enter the city by the gates. They get to come on the inside of the city and dwell with God as he dwells with his people. 
But we need to see clearly in verse 14 that the blessing and these promises are only for those who wash their robes. These blessings and promises are only for those who wash their robes. And that imagery of robes being washed clean is consistent throughout Revelation. Look at it in in chapter 6, verse 9. Speaking of the martyrs. It says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren were to be killed, even as they had been given a white robe. These faithful saints are given a white robe. We see a similar image in chapter 7, the very next chapter. I believe this applies to not just the martyrs, but to all the saints. Look what it says in verse 13. One of the elders saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All of that, like some people, we want to read this in in chapter 7 and say, oh, that's a special class. That's a special group of believers who have come out of the great tribulation. That's not every saint will experience that. And yet we know because we've just finished reading 20 through 22 that those promises that are given to them are given to all the people of God in the end. The picture is that all of us will enjoy it. He's going to wipe every tear from all of our eyes. We will all have access to the waters of life. All of those things are true for all of us. And so I believe he's talking about all the saints there who've come out of the tribulation because we're in the midst of the great tribulation like the whole church age is much of a tribulation so the clean robe the clean robe here is a mark of the people of God it's a mark of the people of God in revelation it identifies those who belong to him I want you to see that the image of these robes washed clean is consistent in revelation I want you to see secondly that the blood of Jesus is the agent that cleanses the robes. How do you get a white robe? You get it by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what washes us clean. If the Old Testament sacrificial system teaches us anything, it teaches us that blood is necessary to make things clean. Blood is necessary to make things clean. If something is dirty, if someone is dirty, it requires blood to make it clean. The Old Testament sacrificial system teaches us that, and we know that the blood of Jesus is the great fulfillment of everything that Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. It it is the blood of Jesus that ultimately makes us clean. It is the blood of Jesus that washes our robes white. We see this in Revelation chapter 1. This is language we have already seen in this very book. At the very introduction of the book, in fact, look at it. In verse 4, it says, John 
to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. How do we get released from our sins? How do we get cleansed? By his blood. By his blood alone. We see Jesus speak this way in Matthew chapter 26. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, it says, When he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How do you get forgiveness of sins? Through the blood of Jesus. Only through the blood of Jesus. How do you get cleansed from your filth? Through the blood of Jesus. We see this language in Ephesians chapter 1, which says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. That's beautiful, right? How do we get redemption? Through his blood. How do we get forgiveness? Through his blood. How do we get cleansing? Through his blood. We see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You catch that? Like it's exactly the argument that I'm trying to make. The old, the old Testament, the old covenant sacrificial system, it took blood to make something clean. But they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. But the blood of Jesus was offered once for all. And it makes clean, not just on the outside, but from the conscience, even on the inside, it makes us clean. How do you get forgiven? Through the blood of Jesus. How do you get reconciled to God? Through the blood of Jesus. How are you atoned for? By the blood of Jesus. How are you cleansed? Only by the blood of Jesus. John uses this same language in chapter 1 of his letter, his first letter, when he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one, or, one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I want you to see, I could go on and on with New Testament connections to the blood of Jesus and the cleansing from our sin. I want you to recognize that it is the blood of Jesus that is the agent of our cleansing. He washes us clean by his blood. And so we sing of his blood. We thank him for his blood poured out for us. Third thing I want you to get here is that quite interestingly, the tense of the verb for washing indicates not a once for all washing, but an ongoing washing. It's a really interesting thing. So this is not just about justification. 
The question that comes out of verse 14 is not, are you washed in the blood? It's not, have you been washed in the blood? The question that comes out of this verse is, are you washing in the blood? This seems to be less about justification and more about ongoing sanctification, which is linked back to verse 11 when he says, let the righteous go on doing righteousness. Let the ones who have been washed in the blood go on washing in the blood of Jesus. I fear as a pastor that way too many people claim to have been washed in the blood of Jesus, but have no interest in talking about continued washing in the blood of Jesus. In other words, plenty of people love to embrace the passive positional holiness that comes with conversion. We love to say, I'm clean. And we reject and shun any talk of active, practical holiness that is pursued in sanctification. You talk about wash yourself clean in the blood of Jesus. Be holy. You are holy, so be holy. You are righteous, so live in that righteousness. And people will say, that's legalism. Don't talk to me about what I do. It's not about what I do. It's about what I believe. And what I believe makes me who I am. And that is true. And what you believe makes you who you are. And who you are will be evidenced by what you do. So I'm calling you to trust in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you once and for all from all of your sins. And then I'm calling you to walk faithfully with him for the rest of your life. And continue to wash yourself clean in the blood of Jesus day by day by day. Trusting in him for the cleansing that you need. This is not just about justification. I believe that the modern church in America is an expert on justification. We have thrown sanctification out the window. We are called here to live by faith. Not just to con we're not just called to conversion. We're called to follow Jesus, to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 is heavy. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. How do you get this washing? You get it by trusting in the blood of Christ, depending on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you washed? Are you washing? The promises, the blessings are for you, if the answer is yes. If not, look at verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Some people get really confused here. Didn't we just read that the unbelieving rebels have been cast into the lake of fire? But here, they're referred to as dogs and they're simply outside the city. To us modern readers, that doesn't sound so bad. To be eternally a pet, living in the suburbs. This sounds so bad. But I'm telling you, this was not written to modern readers. This was written to people who saw dogs as awful scavengers who were unclean and dangerous. Not Fido who sits on your couch at night. Dogs were dangerous scavengers who were filthy. And because of their mostly Jewish background, the audience of this book saw outside the city as a place of the curse, where things that were dirty and dangerous were cast away to be cut off from the community. 
So when he refers here in this text to the dogs are on the outside, don't read that as some minor inconvenience. Don't read that as some kind of minor secondary state where it's like, that's not really hell, but it's not heaven either. And that doesn't sound so bad to me. So maybe if I can shoot for that, is that the middle road we've always been looking for? No, no one in the first century would have understood this as a middle road. Dogs on the outside equals lake of fire. It's the same same thing. It's the same concept. It's the same horrible fate for those who are on the outside. So this is just another way to describe the fate of the unbelieving, of the rebellious. They will not be on the inside. They will be on the outside forever and ever. But listen, even this warning, even in this warning, there is an invitation to all the dogs. All the dogs should listen. There's an invitation. Change is possible. Hope is available. I can say with confidence, I was a dog. I was a dog. But now, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I'm a child of God. I was filthy, but I have been washed in the blood, and I am washing in the blood every day. His blood can make me clean, and his blood can make you clean. Even in this talk about the dogs who were cast out on the outside, there's an invitation to come to the inside. So here are the two applications from today's text. These verses are a call to faith for the outsider. I don't think you can get around this. They are called to faith from the out, for the outsider. They are called to come in because everyone who's on the inside used to be on the outside. This text, Paul, Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. This is an invitation to faith for the outsider to come to the inside. And it's an invitation that has a strange tone. When I was growing up, we sang a song in church all the time that talked about softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And the song itself was soft and tender, calling for you and for me. Oh, sinner, come home. And that is there in the scriptures. Sometimes the call of Jesus to come home is soft and tender. Sometimes it's lovingly harsh. Sometimes he says, after all that I've shown you, after all that I've said to you, after all that you have seen, if you want to be a dog, be a dog. If you want to be on the outside, be on the outside. If you are filthy, go on being filthy. I don't think the heart behind that is so that people will be filthy. I think the heart behind it is just like Joshua's heart. You want to go back and serve those gods? You're crazy. Come with me and serve the Lord. You don't want to be on the outside with the dogs. Come inside. Come inside by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you today to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. His blood and his blood alone can make you clean. It's not just about a once cleansing. It's about a constant cleansing. We are under the blood of Jesus by grace through faith in him. This is a call to faith. It's a call to faith for the outsider to come inside. That's one thing. Second thing is, this is a call to faithfulness for the insiders, to stay inside. This is a call for us who have made profession of faith in Jesus Christ to live according to that profession of faith. If we are righteous, let's be righteous. If we are on the inside, let's live like people who are on the inside. Like, let's not live in such a way that that someone would say, you're an insider? You're you're a follower of Jesus and you you live like this? 
let's live out our profession of faith. Let's grow in Christ-likeness. Let's discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Let's live according to our profession of faith. Let's preach and teach and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not seal up these words. Open them up and tell people about the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Let's persevere and endure by faith. Let's live according to our profession of faith. So this is a call to faith for the outsider. Come inside. And this is a call to faithfulness for the insider. Stay inside. Live like Christ's people. And there's a sense of urgency to all of this. This is the third thing. The end is near. The end is near one way or another, whether the white horse is about to show up or you're about to die. The end is near. Judgment is coming. You ready for that? I believe there are men and women in this room, boys and girls in this room who can say, I'm ready for that. I'm way ready for that. I'm way ready for that day, trusting in Christ, embracing his grace, basking in his lavish goodness to us. I am ready for that day. And others, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to die. I don't know if I'm ready for Christ to return. Maybe you're like, I don't know because I got so much in this world that I want to do, so many things I want to see. You're tied to this world. Don't be tied to this world. Fix your hope in him. Some of you are like, ah, I'm not ready for that because I know when he comes on the white horse, I'm a dog. Every saint used to be a dog. God changed him by his grace. Maybe he's changing you right now. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we pray that the outsiders will hear the invitation to come inside today. That they will hear the call to faith. That they will hear as a gift from you about your holiness and your righteousness. That they will understand as a gift from you about their sinfulness and the judgment they deserve and that they will hear as a gift from you about the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. That they will know because you teach them that Christ died for their sins. God, I pray that you'll give them faith to trust in Christ for salvation and repentance to turn away from sin. I pray that the outsiders will hear the invitation to come inside. And I pray that the insiders will hear the invitation to stay inside. That we will take seriously the walk of sanctification that we will discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that we will wash continually in the blood of Jesus, that we will live according to our profession of faith, that it will make sense that we have a home in heaven with you. God, I pray in all of this, you will build in us a sense of urgency, knowing that the end is near and judgment is coming. Oh, Father, let us be found faithful. Let us be found faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name.